1: You can support this podcast at patreon.com partners in crime media.
0: This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Melissa Hubler from Beaverton, Oregon. Melissa will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at Law and Order
2: I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Adam Ragusia, and these are their stories.
0: You think you know who
3: did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and Order, Law and Order.
1: their stories so-
2: Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership, and today we're looking at Original Recipe Season 3, Episode 13, Night and Fog. And joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of the podcast Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, LaVoy. Hello, Rebecca.
3: Hello. Uh, you should be able to tell from my papers that were so expertly filed that it's actually LaVoy. But oh, I, okay. I, I do appreciate the intro.
4: Can we call you Kevin Flan now? <laughs>
2: Please do. That's how I was... I
4: presenting. love Flan. It's so good.
2: <laughs> and rounding out our panel is the very witty special guest from the Pub Podcast, Adam Ragusia. Hi, Adam.
4: Sup? I also host a stupid podcast
2: about Billy Joel. If people want to listen to that, we know (laughs) you didn't start the podcast. I didn't. Didn't do it. We didn't start the podcast. I've talked about your podcast
3: on our other show, uh, Crime Writers on. Your podcast is my favorite podcast that's come out in the last few months. I cannot recommend it to enough people. It's called We Didn't Start the Podcast. It's about Billy Joel. It's great. Although yeah. Kevin hates it.
2: No, that's not true. And it's not, <laughs> not true. Adam, you are a studied musician as well as a journalist and an instructor. You have the bona fides to do a podcast. Talk about law and order. Yeah, those two well, things
4: that, add up to law and order, right? Yeah. Well,
2: but, but no, I mean, in your other podcasts, you really are oh, one yeah. of the few people that could talk about an artist like that. So I have to ask, what the hell did Billy Joel ever do to you?
4: He was he was in the car nonstop from the ages of zero to eighteen. Okay, that's what he did to me.
2: Show us on the doll where Billy Joel touched you in the ears.
4: (laughs) On the ears, he stuck his fat fingers right in my ears. (laughs) His His sausage little his little Vienna Vienna sausage fingers. Uh, Thank you guys for having me. I I should, here in the self-promotion portion of the program, I'll mention that the pub, that podcast that I do, is about the public media industry in which Rebecca works. That's how we know each other. If you're interested in how the sausage is made in public radio or television, listen to my show. Uh, My day job is teaching journalism here at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. And if you have children who want to study journalism, send them to me. And uh, And you'll send them into banking. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, exactly. I was going to try to go with your where did the doll touch you joke, and I was just like, wow, that... dragons
2: lie there. I wouldn't go there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, The Pub is a great podcast about public media, so I'll ask, should public radio feel threatened by podcasters like Rebecca and myself?
4: Should it? No. Does it? Yes. Why? Because, uh, you know, the... uh, It's okay. we want to get
2: into here? There's only five of us listening to this podcast. (laughs) That's right, exactly. Well, that's (laughs) the It's the three of us and my mom... (laughs) That's the problem
4: is is that it actually is substantially more than five. Look, people only have so many hours in a day to listen to stuff. Okay, And, you know, the assumption among a lot of people in radio has been that listenership that they lose to on demand stuff, streaming and all of that. That as, as people listen to more and more stuff like that, they're going to listen to the radio less and less. Now, so far, our experience has been to the contrary. There's lots and lots of data indicating that the pie itself is growing. More and more people are spending more and more hours every single week listening to stuff. They're listening to radio and they're listening to shows like yours. And I think that that's really, really wonderful. I think that more and more people in the public radio system are understanding that and learning about that. However, I, I, I kind of think that like that trend line can't go up forever. Like people only have so many hours in a day. So we are going to see that max out at at one point or another. I think the other big reason that public radio people feel a little threatened by podcasting, at least those who do feel threatened by podcasting, is that it's making them work harder. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> Work differently. Uh, cause it, cause, no, because it because it used to be that there was only one place to get spoken audio programming that wasn't freaking brain dead. Mm-hmm. And it was your local NPR station. Mm-hmm. That was really the only place to go, right? Yeah. If you had half a brain and you wanted to listen to people talk about stuff. Now you can okay?
2: download stuff that's brain dead. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Now you can download stuff that's brain dead, (laughs) but you can also
4: listen to like a lot of smart stuff. You can download a lot of smart stuff. And so it's like I think they're aware of the fact that their monopoly on that is rapidly slipping through their fingers, which makes some people nervous, but also makes them try harder, which is a good thing. So you guys are helping. You're not hurting. You're helping.
2: Well, one of the things I hope that you keep, Adam, is the pseudo sponsors that you had. Oh fake Sp- ads? Yes, yeah. because in in honor of that, I wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Little Blue Greek Coffee Cups. <laughs> <laughs> Want to tell the world that you'll drink any kind of coffee? <laughs> even if it's brewed using rags of motor oil. Well, why not choose coffee served in cups with fake inscriptions of antiquity on them? Nothing says fresh coffee like the Coliseum. Now you can get your coffee the same way you get your cigarettes, dropped from a vending machine in the hallway of a public building.
4: You know what those cups always make me think of, and and I actually had this thought when we were watching this Law & Order episode, is um, that scene in Terminator 2 when the security guard in the mental institution goes to like one of those coffee dispensers <laughs> and it's got and the T one thousand Yeah, on the thing with the cards on it and the T one thousand stabs them through his eye from <laughs> the back of his head. So like <laughs> Yeah, those coffee cups make me think of getting stabbed through the eye from the back of your head.
2: But the thing I always think of when I see those little Greek blue coffee cups is like it's perfect for just like quickly throwing on the ground. You got to run after a perp.
3: What I think exactly. When, that's right. What I think when I see this it's, little it's the, blue. It's,
2: it's, it's the equivalent
4: of hold my beer, right? It's, right. it's, it's, it's the Lenny Briscoe equivalent <laughs> of hold my beer. It's
2: like I can't drink this 75 cent cup of coffee when I got to run.
3: Yeah, I, I just think it's like you have to be doing something else. Like drinking the coffee cannot be the primary activity. No. You're either yeah. questioning somebody, talking about something, eating a hot dog or something else entirely.
4: Well, that's one of the themes of Law & Order is like <laughs> there's there must always be multitasking going on. That's right. You can't just be interviewing a witness. You must be like rolling up a carpet or something <laughs> or, you know,
2: like you cannot unitask in the world of Law & Order. Adam, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team?
1: Favorite Law and Order detective
4: team. Here's here's the place where Law and Order occupies in my life, which is like it's something that we watch in the house when we can't pay attention to anything, (laughs) right? (laughs) So... So to me, it's like and that's the thing is like you can consume them reasonably effectively when you're paying, you know, maybe 20 to 30 percent attention to them. Right. So for me, it's all just like, hey, it's old guy. It's brown hair. It's baldy. It's black guy. You know.
3: All right. So in those terms, who's your favorite law enforcement detective team? Leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, I like I like uh, 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 sexy and uh, and old guy.
2: <laughs> Wait, well, yeah, I can translate Logan and Briscoe, Mr. The Bing. guy who's in Sex in the City.
3: Oh like, yeah. yeah, so oh, the, yeah. the team is in the See, show. See, I talk guy. You yeah. don't want to talk guy.
4: <laughs>
2: Do yeah. you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite Law and Order District Attorney Prosecutorial
4: Team. I, I like the prosecutor who is in this episode who, the actor who plays him is this crazy conservative. <laughs> <laughs> um, Moriarty. Yeah. Yeah. Moriarty, yeah. Yes,
3: yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it adds some like fun dimension to this particular episode, I do have to say.
2: <laughs> now let's look at the first half of this episode, Law and Order Season 3, Episode 13, Night and Fog. The TV is too loud, so of course the nosy neighbor and two patrolmen are going to walk into the unlocked apartment to see what's wrong. (laughs) That's when they find Mrs. Steinmetz dead on the floor with a bloody nose. Well, right after that, Mr. Steinmetz enters and confesses to helping his sick wife commit suicide, and so ends another three-minute
1: episode of Law & Order. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, he didn't exactly pull the trigger. But he held the gun. Man to assist a suicide. Come on, you're really going to run with this? The guy's 70 years old. It's not like he whacked his wife for the insurance money. Maybe he did. Without a note from her, all we have is his work. Oh, well, we're going to talk to the daughter. In the meantime, we charge
2: Robinette wants to charge him with assisted suicide, and Stone is troubled that the old man makes a bald face lie to a judge to get his confession tossed. So Logan and Briscoe keep digging. The lab says the sleeping pills weren't enough to kill Mrs. Steinmetz. Logan finds a pillow covered with blood, which could have been used to smother the woman. Well, it's important to know that Mr. and Mrs. Steimats were concentration camp survivors. They got into a pretty heated argument after reading something in a Polish language newspaper, and it wasn't Dear and Landerski. Mm-hmm. An article. Oh God! Oh, God. <laughs> An article says a man. Welcome to named, our show. <laughs> a man named Yakov Skullman, from Steinmetz's ghetto, was tried in absentia for being a Nazi collaborator. Like Steinmetz, Skullman was a tailor, a cruel man who made uniforms for the Nazis. The detectives believe the wife learned her husband was, in fact, Skullman, and he murdered her to keep the secret. So, uh, Mr. Stein- wait, wait, wait.
4: You're, you're leaving out the best part, which is that noisy neighbor walks them to the door, they open the door— and they bring her in with them. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell was that?
2: If you she say has anything, no right bag She's
4: not like she's not. I mean, I would almost understand it if it was like the building super, <laughs> but it wasn't. It was just the lady from upstairs. Mrs. Frazzled. and they bring her in to pr- this private property with them.
3: <laughs> I, I do have one crime scene thing that I want to ask you about. All right. They found Mrs. Steinmetz on the floor. Right. <laughs> and then when Briscoe shows up. Um, She's on the bed.
2: Someone picked her up, rolled her over, put her back on the (laughs) bed. Who
3: picked her up from the floor where she was actually dead? It's okay, guys. I already got a photo of
2: her. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta just put her up. I'm my knees are killing me. Do I have to keep bending down? It just felt
3: like bad continuity. Like they 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 changed their mind about where the body was supposed to be, and they forgot to edit the scenes. I bet I know
4: why they did that. Actually, why is that? Um, Because it would have been really difficult to have her in the background of the shot. Oh, um, when she was still on the floor. It's probably a good
3: point, right?
4: There would have been a solution to that, by the way, which is to get her on the gurney. Uh, right. Or, or like however they were going to pull her out. Yeah.
2: Now, if you go far back enough in law and order, you can definitely see some anachronistic legal and social positions. Right. We've seen this in past episodes. First, we're talking about the crime of assisted suicide. Uh, Twenty five years later, have we come to a consensus on this or not? Adam, what do you think? Insanely, we haven't. There's
4: like lots of polling on this that indicates that, you know, g- generally America is like. 60 to 80 percent in favor of physician assisted suicide. If you look at those stats, however, the the wording of the questions gets very, very delicate. And I think I, I actually I'm skeptical of some of those polls.
2: That's physician-assisted suicide. How do they feel about Nazi-assisted suicide? (laughs)
1: Nazi-assisted suicide.
2: Or husband-assisted suicide, (laughs) yeah.
3: Well, Adam Schiff called it an act of love, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, first of all, Adam Schiff, in the news this week, shout out, right? Wrong Adam Schiff. Oh, crap. You got
2: to turn that Google alert off. You're
3: right, you're right. Oh, but the Adam Schiff, who's on this episode of Law & Order, (laughs) was clearly... You know, a little bit more progressive when it came to this. And he immediately was like, it was an act of love, plead him out. But of course, pleading him out doesn't mean like, let him go. <laughs> it means like 15 years instead of 30 years, <laughs> which when you're already a super old man uh, is not exactly a great deal, as we. They
4: could have pleaded him with probation, right?
3: I, I, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't
2: know. They, well, he could have got a job in the prison tailor shop. Oh, I guess. yeah, it's true. He's oh. very experienced. Uh, we had kind of a crossover. 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 In the role of defense attorney Gary Lowenthal is Eric Boghazian. Yes.
1: It's just as reasonable to presume that after swallowing a lethal dose of sedatives, Ursula Steinmetz fell from her bed and broke her nose. And
2: yeah. a dozen years later, he joins the cast of Law & Order Criminal Intent as Captain Danny Ross. This
4: is a pretty intense But at office. this stage... In the, what is this, 1990 that came out? 92, yeah. 92. He is sporting a jerry curl that could make Lionel <laughs> Richie
2: jealous. <laughs> it
4: is lustrous. Lustrous.
2: <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I think he's just like a mustache away from singing Back Up on Man <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: No, it was really funny to see him and well he wasn't the typical um, defense attorney in these shows who has you know the one scene with the cops where he's like this is crap with the investigation and then the two scenes in the courtroom it actually hit a very substantial role in this and it did feel to me like is he auditioning for a future role <laughs> as a captain in and in a police? Yeah,
2: it only took an additional twelve years <laughs> for Dick Wolf to call him up and say, "Would you like to do something again?" Yeah,
3: it was very meaty part for early law. And I Order. think the
2: first question was, "By the way, have you done anything with your hair in the meantime?" <laughs> yes,
1: right, exactly. <laughs> right.
2: You still look like Eric Desalle from when he was in uh, Coming to America. So I think love? maybe it was
4: like it was suppo- the part they wrote the part for Marlon Jackson, and then when Marlon
2: Jackson didn't show. <laughs> 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 We do have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's
3: that guy. We do?
2: Yeah. Anyone know Nehemiah Persoff, who played Mr. Steinmetz?
1: All the time now, Ursula, she was in pain. She begged me to help her. Recognize him?
2: No. He was Barbara Streisand's Papa in Yentel. Shut Whoa. the
3: F up. The Nazi collaborator in this episode was the dad in Yentl. Do
2: you remember the song? Papa,
3: Papa can you hear me? He's Papa.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Which
4: is hilarious because the emotional climax of this episode is when Steinmetz's daughter yells Papa and hugs him. It's true. Yeah. Um,
3: Hilarious. He's, got, <laughs> he, he's a type. Wait a minute. Are you going to tell me that he was like in um, Fiddler on the Roof or something? Even as well? be- no,
2: even better. <laughs> okay. You ready for this? Yeah.
3: I knew you had another one coming.
2: <laughs> he was the voice of Fival's Papa <laughs> in a, an American oh my tale. Oh,
4: God. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then no Fival goes west.
4: You can
3: play one part, old papa man. Papa
2: Mouskowitz.
3: You can play one part.
2: You can be any part, papa you want. And that's
3: the old Jewish dad. That's the only part that you could possibly play, even if you're a cartoon mouse. He has,
2: he has oh, <laughs> 200 listings on IMDb. And actually, here, here's like super <laughs> trivia. He was the cab driver in the front of the cab. In Marlon Brando's, I could have been a contender scene and on the waterfront. All
3: right, was his name like Daddy McPapa Dad? Yeah, he was,
2: that, he that was Papa Cab. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have another. Hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. Did anyone recognize the EMT with two lines? No,
3: no one. No one was paying attention. Were two busy? I don't
2: even
4: remember the uh, EMT. we were too busy
3: wondering how scene? the what body happened? got onto the bed. <laughs> he
4: before. might have been the one who moved
2: it.
1: Old lady with MS. She's been dead three, maybe four hours. These might have had something to do with it. Two months supply of lullabies, half of them gone.
2: Who was it? Just tell us. It's Paul Schultz. He became the derpy-looking father Phil on The Sopranos and Eddie on Nurse Jackie, a couple of big roles there. He ended up being, right now, he's a hey, it's that guy.
3: All right. I believe you, but I didn't see him this he time. Had two lines. Hey,
2: it's a, it's, a, it's a starting point, right? Exactly. Now, there's this great scene when Briscoe is telling Logan about how his father's army unit liberated a concentration camp. I
4: mean, camp. we're mm-hmm. digging up stuff that happened 50 years ago. What the hell? It's ancient history, Lenny.
1: Hey, my old man was a GI in World War II, first regiment into Buchenwald. He never forgot how he felt when he saw those people. I mean,
0: he wasn't religious, but he said after that day, he believed in the devil. This stuff never went away, Mike.
2: And all I'm thinking is, your father was in World War Two. <laughs> I thought you were in World War Two. Listen. That was back in the day
4: when people had kids young, you know?
3: Exactly. And Briscoe, you know, I don't think we're supposed to believe he's as old as Jerry Orbach was when he was playing <laughs> this part. So, I, I sometimes think that. Sometimes I think that they are playing on the, he's an old guy, he doesn't run, he doesn't shoot, he doesn't whatever. Whatever. But then, in other scenes, when he's supposed to be like a cop doing cop things, I'm like, "Yeah, it's Brill Cream, guys. No one thinks his hair is really that color." <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, maybe that's why they had him turn his collar up because yeah. he looked cool. Very spot. These, these were
3: also the very thin Jerry Orbach years in this season of Law and Order. I noticed as well. He was more in the the style of Baby's Dad from A Dirty Dancing in this episode than he was from the Jerry Orbach that we knew and loved in Law and Order.
2: Adam, what did you think of um, Logan's long brown leather jacket? <laughs> Um, <laughs> He's sonned.
4: <laughs> no, it was making me think of, um, so when I was I was a really inept teenager, like I, I, I had a lot of problems being a human um, from the ages of, you know, like 12 to, to 17. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I wanted to get a trench coat because I thought like all the cool kids were getting trench coats, right? So I went to the, uh, what do you call it? The Goodwill to try to find like an old man trench coat. And because I'm, I was terrible at being a human. I also don't see colors very well. Um, I got like this navy blue ladies' raincoat.
2: <laughs> Why are the buttons backwards?
4: <laughs> and I wore that shit for years.
2: <laughs>
3: True confessions. We need to like change this whole podcast up just to hear more of Adam's teenager stories, right? Mm. Immediately, they're rough.
4: We they're were, rough. But jump. anyway, I thought I was looking like that. Is what I'm trying to say. I'm like, I really, really wasn't. But then in that dude, that dude looks hot in anything, <laughs> anything.
2: God. So now here's like the big difference I think between season three and say season seven, six, eight, something like that. When they go to finally go to arrest. Mr. Steimats. They're driving <laughs> along some street, looking on the sidewalk for him. That looks like him. There he is. Pull over, and they take him in. And right, but like in season eight, like the guy would be out buying a banana, and they'd say, "Oh, you'll never see that turn yellow," and <laughs> scoop him up in the middle of something, right, with some pithy line, interrupt his his mahjong game or something.
3: Right, but but two things about that. One. They had actually met him. To sort of, sort of, sort of say, like that looks like him, was a little bit of a weird piece of dialogue. Don't you remember the scene where he stood in front of them and said, "I killed my wife." I like, killed my wife. Like that yeah, happened. Exactly. And B. They know he's out for a walk, which means he's also coming home at some point. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: so the, <laughs> they just they, wait for him.
3: Why didn't they just park their goddamn car in front of his apartment building and get him as he was <laughs> arriving home? The idea that they were like stalking him around his neighborhood where he was out for his the constitutional. It was just it was a very funny affectation of like cops look more like cops if they're driving when they do something. You know, well, what I mean? it was
4: funny because I was wondering, you know, it's like the fact that, yeah, the scene begins with them. You know, tracking him in the car, seeing him from behind, being hesitant for a second before they jump out. And, you know, I think when you're used to watching shows that have extraordinarily tight, deliberate plotting and every single thing that happens has significance to the plot. I was expecting something to go wrong with this arrest, right? This is not the wire, yeah. Adam. But, this is not but the they're wire. they're going to grab it. Exactly. <laughs> well, here, I'm, I'm building to something here. So, like, you know, I thought that they were trying to set up something. Like, they were going to grab him from behind. It was going to be the wrong guy, or uh-huh. he was going to take off, or, or something like that. But they just arrested him w- without incident. And I actually quite liked that. I find that super efficient plotting in teleplays to be really kind of suffocating. I think that just having... Some stuff that happened that isn't significant at all really enhances the realism because life is filled with all kinds of moments that are not significant to the plot. <laughs>
2: Although I have to ask, who do you think would have won that foot race, Mr. Steinmetz or old man (laughs) Briscoe? Now let's look at the second half of this episode. Yes, I can't wait. To show motive in the killing, Stone wants to prove Steinmetz and Skullman are the same person. Witnesses say Skullman walked out of Auschwitz and only Steinmetz emigrated to the U.S. And say what you want about the Nazis, but they were really good at record keeping. Apparently they were. They want to peek at Steinmetz's death camp souvenir. I'm
1: offering your client a chance to prove his innocence. And when he does what? You tattoo a capital I on his forehead? That number is a symbol of unimaginable suffering. And if it's not one of 131 numbers, we'll know for sure he's not Jakob Skulman. Don't you even see what you're asking, Ben? Demanding that he use that number to prove his innocence is an obscenity. Uh, No, Gary. The obscenity is a man killing his wife to save his own skin.
2: Steinmetz's numbered tattoo proves he entered the concentration camp the same day as Skullman. The Justice Department wants to extradite Steinmetz to Poland for war crimes, but Stone wins the appeal, and the defendant will stay in New York to stand trial for his wife's murder. In court, a Holocaust survivor says Skullman would turn over the non productive workers to the Germans, but can't say for sure Steinmetz is the same man. A rabbi testifies that Mrs. Steinmetz grew to believe her husband was the Nazi collaborator and had no intention of committing suicide. On the stand, the Steinmetz's daughter perjures herself about her mother's will. Stone threatens to try her as an accomplice unless Steinmetz takes a plea. The old man agrees to the 25-year sentence on the condition. The record is sealed and the world never knows he truly was Yaakov Skullman. Now, how bad is it that the Nazis' filing system was easier for people to navigate than the New York civil servants?
3: Yeah, I don't even know where our tax returns are that I just filed like three weeks ago. (laughs) I mean, seriously, that was actually one of my favorite things about this episode was very frequently in these older seasons of Law and Order, they go to different offices and talk to different people to get little bits and pieces of information. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. they'll go to like the, you know, adoption records office or whatever. In this episode, they went to like they had the lady translating the Polish newspaper. And I'm like, the library. Who is that lady? Like, nobody ever explained who that was. And they went to, you know, the historical Nazi place. I don't know if Mr. there was. A, Green. Wait, what was the, Mr. What Green. What was that place?
4: I I didn't quite follow. I think it's like, yeah, it's like a guy like who a like, keeps museum. records yeah, of, yeah. The, of, yeah. Yeah, of the Holocaust. And then there was like a whole. And there's a wonderful scene. That's a wonderful scene. I don't know if you noticed that, but like the historian guy, who I thought did a wonderful performance in the whole episode, there's this moment where he opens up a book and he's going to read off to one of the detectives the um, sort of range of numbers on the tattoos of people who came through on this one day.
1: August 21st, 1944, 131 men arrived from the Lotz Ghetto at Auschwitz.
4: And there's this very subtle thing that the guy playing Mr. Green does. He just, he reads off the first number.
1: Uh, The numbers that were tattooed on their arms ranged from 7566.
4: and then he looks at the detective to, like, make sure he got it mm-hmm. and then reads the second number mm-hmm.
1: seven, six, nine, six, inclusive.
4: And it's this like very real thing that if you were doing that for real, that's exactly what you would do. But that they never freaking do in television shows because they're not actually writing down the number or trying to remember it. Right. And I, I, I thought that was that phone a phone
2: call, which is actually six seconds long. Right. Hello? got it.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All yeah. the numbers. You know, Adam, yeah. Adam just pointed out something that I think is rare in later episodes of Law and Order, and even in the same episode, you talk about the incidental performances being, like, ham-fisted or bad. There were some small performances in the episode that were really really good that Dude, the guy, daughter? The daughter the daughter was daughter, amazing oh, i looked her up she's actually juilliard trained actress i looked it up but also the jurors the jurors looked like real jurors and there were just these yeah. little shots where they would sort of pan over to the jury during his trial and i would think like wait is that like an actor and i'm like no that's just like a day player yeah but they were like on face fleek. acting, oh, super good face acting, yeah. aka acting. Kevin kind of yeah. gives me crap because I call it face no, acting,
4: aka acting without <laughs> union rates. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> I don't know, and that stood out because there were those weird little ham-fisted, typical Law and Order things, but the people sort of p- playing those little parts and helping them put the story together—very, very, very strong in this episode. Which is
4: a lot of very nice things in this episode, and then like big picture, the conflict. At the core of the second half of this episode is, I think, tremendously interesting and rich and although I think it's a little too explicit, like we have like characters basically saying, now here is the theme of the second half of this episode. It's still (laughs) such an interesting theme because the question that the ADAs are focused with is like, what are we going to value more? individual justice or historical justice.
2: If the state continues with this prosecution, Mr. Steinmetz will die in prison and never be tried for crimes against humanity.
0: And we must allow a suspected murder to go untried. He will be tried for the greater evil.
4: Because down one path of their prosecutional approach, down one path leads taking this guy who is at best a murderer of his wife and at worst also a Nazi collaborator, taking this guy and putting him in jail for the rest of his miserable life, right? That's one door they open. That's the result. The other door they open means they potentially let him go. But there's a full accounting of his crimes, his true identity as this Nazi collaborator is known, and they rob him. Instead of depriving him of his liberty for the rest of his life, they deprive him of his legacy for all eternity. Those are the two doors that they are faced with, and that's a tremendously interesting and rich dilemma.
2: There was a great scene that speaks to that, where Ben Stone is meeting with Schiff.
1: Either way, I'm helping a mass murderer cover up his crimes. Ben, a woman was murdered in our jurisdiction, and that's our only priority. Adam, I may be wrong, but I thought of all people, you would want... A man killed his wife? Try him, convict him. That's all I want. Poland is not entitled to punish him for the greater evil? Greater evil. This office doesn't care about Poles or Nazis, any more than it does about Serbs or Croats. Not in the evil business. We're in the crime business. We're not in the
2: evil business. We're in the crime business.
3: Right, right. And then Ben and his... What I've come to, I have to say, I'm rewatching all these old episodes. Like as I used to like love Ben Stone, and now I sort of hate his ridiculous deadpan but earnestness. But he goes to
2: Schiff for a reason. I know, but then he's because like, he's he's his the Jewish. Know, DA. He I wanted know. his buy, which I thought was a really touching. And moment. Schiff
3: is the one who's like, we are not representing Poland here. We're representing our jurisdiction, which is New York. And Can then- we talk about that word for a second? Hold on sure. a
4: second. Jurisdiction is how you just said it. Jurisdiction, and how, yes, and that's how it's always said in this show, and that's how most people say it. But that's not the freaking word. It's not a T. It's a D. I right? said
3: jurisdiction. It's, it just sounded like a T. It's, it always comes <laughs> out like a T.
4: This gets me so exercised whenever I watch this show. And the problem is, is that it's like it's actually really hard to pronounce it like a D. If you do a, a syllabus on the s, but if you do a z sound on the s, it's really really easy. If you say jurisdiction,
0: mm-hmm. it can
4: come out that way. Like and I and I always say that. I say jurisdiction. I if you listen to my Billy Joel podcast, you know I'm fond of the word disdain. Mm-hmm. Um, same deal. Um, so I know that like I'm sacrificing because like it really it's an s and not a z, but like I just that. That it's a D and not a T. Come on. All
3: right. Well, there was a more egregious mispronunciation in this show that I want to point oh. out to you. When Adam Schiff talks about our jurisdiction is not the Serbs and the Croats, <laughs>
4: <laughs> is that? A, did he say that? He did. <laughs> was he? Say, did he mean to say Croats?
3: He meant to say Croats.
4: Cro, croats. Yeah. Okay.
3: <laughs> I had to rewind it, and I'm like, Adam Schiff just said Croats. <laughs> it's like a little bit awkward. Yes. Whoops. No. But I'm with you, and as a former singer, who you know. Sang a lot of classical music. I, I'm with Diction. you on that. Diction is difficult, but so is delivering a line like, the obscenity is a man killing his wife to save his own skin. And Ben Stone in this episode, his earnestness for me is just, it's disgusting. Too it's too much. I yeah. can't I can't even, as young people say.
2: So in the end, Steinmetz gives his justification. So it was that so long as the business remained productive... The Nazis would not send those workers to the camp, so he felt like he was buying time, even though all of them were eventually sent to camp. So he's kind of like Oscar Schindler, if you were an asshole.
3: But Oscar Schindler was kind of an asshole too. I oh, mean, okay. Is that if <laughs> you saw Schindler's thread? list? I mean, he was actually also kind of an asshole. I mean, but here's
4: the thing: is that it's like the defense's alternative theory of the crime is actually made all the more compelling by the fact that Stymitz, by all accounts was like a model citizen. You know, he was this wonderful dad, wonderful business owner, when he came to the states was nothing but a wonderful citizen. So that to me bolsters the the narrative that the reason he was so ruthless in his running of this Nazi sweatshop was actually that he was trying to keep productivity up so that the Nazis wouldn't send everyone to the camps. Right. I, f- I find that compelling. And the problem is that the more compelling that argument can be, the more the narrative is kept morally ambiguous, which makes it really interesting. And unfortunately, it's undermined by the fact that Eric Boghossian is playing the defense attorney the way that guest actors always played defense attorneys on Law & Order, which is a total fucking sleazebag, mm-hmm. right?
1: Now tell me, sir, would your center consider Jakob Schoolman a war criminal? You have to understand that, uh, that men like Mr. Schoolman were victims before they were criminals. You know, I, I, I couldn't say unless I saw all of the facts. Is that because Jakob Schoolman is a Jew? Objection, Your Honor. Withdrawn. This,
4: you know, total shit-eating grin, sleaze bag. So, so it makes you think, you don't take it as a sincere argument, you just take it as, like, he's just trying to sleaze his client out of the thing. And I think that's like, either a bad acting choice on the part of Boghossian, or more likely it's poor directing.
3: Or poor writing, because the entire defense was based on playing the, and I'm saying this in the spirit with which, uh, in the context of this episode, he's sort of playing the Jewish card in the defense, which is also, like, you're saying he's dishonest. That's what they've always said about the Jews. Like that comes up over and over again. And when you hear what this guy has to say at the end, you kind of think like, wouldn't it be better just to admit that you're this guy and say that during your trial? <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, because they, they
4: the defense yeah, the defense was contradictory because they were constantly pursuing two lines of argument. One was that schoolmen was actually not such a bad guy. And the other line of argument was Steinman ain't schoolman.
3: Right, exactly. And
4: you know, and one argument undermines the other. I'm not as skeptical of that particular plot point as you are, um, Rebecca, because the whole thing about the Polish government prosecuting a Jewish collaborator so zealously
3: in absentia,
4: absentia, that's like a real thing that they have been criticized for. Yeah, no, because it's this sort of victim blaming that makes them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So, no, I mean, to me that that rang really, really true. And I just think and the whole thing just would have been so deliciously ambiguous had Eric Bogosian in his stupid Jerry curl (laughs) not been so slyly evil in in how he played the part.
3: All right. Well, I have two other like small quibbles. One is if you are a person pretending to be another person who's not the Nazi collaborator that you maybe were – should you maybe choose a different line of work than the exact line of work that you did <laughs> when you were running the company in the Jewish ghetto and beating people You're really
4: up? asking a lot. You want him to learn a whole other fucking trade? He just survived the Holocaust. What are you talking about?
3: B, there was that whole really interesting legal wrangling about whether or not he needed to show him his tattoo. Uh, he needed to show Ben Stone the tattoo in the privacy of his office to yeah. you know, prove, in fact, that he might have been schoolman. And then like two seconds later, we were in that hearing with the State Department arguing that how did the State Department find out about any of this?
4: Any of this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
3: Who's telling them about the procedures in this little like New York court situation that suddenly like Ben Stone is in court against the State Department? How did that happen?
2: Well, I'll just say they have their ways. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. Uh oh! It's time for Ripped from the Headlines
0: think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines.
1: This episode was inspired by the true story of Ivan Demyanyuk, a Soviet World War II veteran. He emigrated to the United States in the 1950s, changing his first name to John and lived a quiet life as an auto worker in Cleveland. Then in 1975, a Ukrainian newspaper published the names of locals who had collaborated with the Nazis during the war. Prosecutors claimed after being captured by the Germans, Demjaniuk volunteered for a program that turned Soviet POWs into concentration camp guards. Several Holocaust survivors identified him as Ivan the Terrible, a notorious guard at the Polish camp. What followed was five decades of deportations, convictions, death sentences, reprieves and releases. Prosecutors in the US, Israel and Germany relied on photos provided from the KGB. But both war documents released by Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union suggested a different guard was Ivan the Terrible. All that time his family said he was the victim of mistaken identity. In 2011, at age 91, John Demjanjuk was convicted of being an accessory to the murder of 27,000 people. He died 10 months later in a German nursing home while awaiting appeal.
0: Bam, bam, bam.
2: Wow. So how do you start a family, coach Little League in America, and pretend like you didn't kill 20,000 Jews?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the whole conundrum here, right? I mean, those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, we all read Apt Pupil by Stephen King. So we're all sort of believed that, you know, a Nazi could live next door to us and had done horrible things. But I think one of the things this episode does well, except for the horrible ham-fisted parts about his defense attorney that we talked about, is show that it is grayer often <laughs> than than we want it to be. I mean, I remember that, Ivan the Terrible Case, and I remember just as a consumer of media thinking like, oh, this guy's a Nazi, like he killed lots yeah. of people. But I also remember his family saying, I mean, if that's your dad, like that it must be a very, very difficult thing to reconcile. So I don't know. I don't know a way to answer this without getting a bunch of hate mail. So I'm just <laughs> going to say it's gray and leave it at that and let Adam take on the heady stuff. What do you think, Adam?
4: Do 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 I think it's good to prosecute old Nazis? Is that what you're asking? me? (laughs) No.
3: Do you think it's gray?
4: (laughs) I think it's totally gray because it also like cases like that invite the question. If a person can do a terrible thing in their youth and then go on to be totally productive citizens, is not that maybe the better outcome? Right.
3: But maybe it wasn't Um, him, too. Right. I mean, that's that's another thing. Oh,
4: and another another like kind of, you know, historical tidbit about the Ivan the Terrible case is that because he died while awaiting his appeal in the German judicial system, that means that he's innocent because the the appeal never got a chance to be adjudicated with him present. So he has no criminal record as far as the German justice system is concerned. He didn't do it. Hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, like. You know, whether or not somebody did it like that's that's the question at the heart of every criminal justice thing ever. And the fact that the alleged crime happened 50 years ago instead of five years ago or five you know months ago, I don't think that is really relevant to it. I think that this episode of Law and Order does like a really impressive job of exploring all of those questions, though. Um, the one other sort of big picture question that I had about it and I want to put to you guys is. Okay, so like Law & Order is really known for the head fake, right? Mm-hmm. So they they lead you to, to believe early in the, in the episode that one person did it and then you, know, you realize later on that another person did it and maybe uh, later, later on that a whole other person did it, right? So they head fake you a lot. In this episode, they don't head fake you at all. You find out in the very first scene who did it. That's never in question. What they do head fake you on is what the episode is going to be about, what its theme is going to be. Because for the first like 20% of this episode, you think that the theme of this episode is going to be about the moral rectitude of assisted suicide. Correct. Right. And then <clears throat> nope. Actually Nazis. this episode is going to be about Nazis. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on the one hand I I think that's like super kind of clever. On the other hand it did leave me feeling as though the episode was thematically cluttered. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was this kind of thematic disunity to it um, that kept it from being the sort of really elegant, unified narrative arc that I wanted it to be. Hey,
3: listen, if I could count all of the elegant Law & Order episodes, <laughs> there'd be like four of them out of the many, yeah. many thousands that that exist. My question also in terms of just the unity and the lack of elegance is, what actually happened to Mrs. Steinmetz? Did she was she murdered or did she commit suicide? Oh, she was
2: murdered. I don't. But I he, don't, he admitted it in the end. Yeah, but did she take the pills? Exactly.
3: I don't know. actually I feel like I that was question about was that, really yeah. answered either. I feel like maybe she took the pills and then he did the pillow to help her. I didn't know. I felt like what was the actual crime? I don't know. I felt like. Can,
2: can you just settle for the fact that he, he did was a Nazi? A, yeah, he was a Nazi, <laughs> and he's going to jail. He wasn't
3: a Nazi. He was a collaborator. I don't know. This gets complicated. It's gray. It's yeah. all no, I'm as, say. As
4: the, the Jewish Holocaust historian guy said, you know, these people were victims before they became victimizers, and thus. The victimizing that they did is ultimately the responsibility of the people who victimized the victimizers.
2: Yes. In, in the, the rip from the headline story, John yankchuk I mean, he, he definitely maintained that he was not Ivan the Terrible. But many Soviets took the jobs to get out of their own camps. And you know you could yeah even, that, that's an important
4: point like yeah. he wasn't a Jew he was just a Soviet soldier right right, right. and you no, know, he, he was probably a conscript right because they he was most of the Soviet soldiers right. were
2: he was from the Ukraine he was drafted he went into the into the war and so he became a collaborator you could say Oscar Schindler could be defined as a collaborator. And without being apologetic, because sometimes law and order gets rape apologetic or murder apologetic, certainly not getting Holocaust apologetic. But is there not a certain pragmatism that comes with the realization that surviving is not a fate worse than death?
3: Here's the thing. I don't think – and this is like another thing that the show leaves on the table, right – the wife the dead wife we know is a concentration camp survivor like legit nobody mm-hmm. ever in any way says this he's a collaborator like she was a victim from day one correct right like, she's a traumatized victim would a Nazi have married that person well, remember
2: he was he was also Jewish that's right and he he was a Jewish collaborator he had his in the fictional and world he spent let's his remember enti- the fictional world yes uh, but he, he spent his, his
3: entire adult life taking care of her as mm. the daughter lays out he took her to the park when she became ill he fed her he bathed her he carried her to the bathroom right there's a and that, whole that's other that's an important th- distinction it is it is an important distinction because
4: Ivan the Terrible Ivan Shishlana Sh- yeah, we know you <laughs> <done>. um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know he he at least according to testimony in his trial It wasn't just that he was a collaborator. He was vicious. He was sadistic. He enjoyed having the opportunity to physically torment other people.
2: He wasn't even the nice guy.
4: Yeah, exactly. And there's only the tiniest intimation of that about Steinmetz in this Law and Order episode. Like, you know, the, the witnesses talk about him beating people. But there isn't a whole lot about him, like, taking a bunch of delight in it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And again, we know that, like, he had an impeccable record as a human being as soon as he got over here. And so to me, that sort of argues for, again, the defense's theory of the case. His, His work as a collaborator was primarily to try to make the best of a bad situation for himself and as many other people as possible.
2: Yeah. In real life, this guy's, Ivan the Terrible's final conviction did not come for another 20 years after this episode aired. Right. This was one of the longest Nazi prosecution cases. It covered five decades. Mm -hmm. And as Adam pointed out, it never actually got resolved because the appeal was still pending at the time of his death. And you know why it took so long? Why? Russian meddling. Really? Just saying. Are KG... you kidding? I am not kidding. Did they hack his emails? They <laughs> Well, the KGB provided a lot of the original information. Man. And then also started throwing in some reasonable doubt. Forget
3: Law and Order the Americans has never been more relevant. That's all I'm going to say about that.
2: For sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it for us. I want to thank our guest, Adam Ragusia. Hey, Adam, where can our listeners follow you online?
4: I'm at a Ragusia on Twitter. That's at A-R-A-G-U-S-E-A. You can uh, find The Pub in iTunes by searching The Pub and then looking beyond Pub Songs Podcast, those fuckers. Um, <laughs> and then uh, if you want to find We Didn't Start the Podcast, uh, We Didn't Start the Podcast, we'll, we'll take care of you.
2: And if you want to read the definitive article on why Mariah carries All I Want for Christmas, Christmas, Christmas is You, is you you gotta read Adam's article. <laughs>
3: That's right.
2: Rebecca, how can listeners follow you?
3: They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at RebLavoy. And honestly, guys, whether or not you love, hate, or are indifferent about Billy Joel, seriously, <laughs> listen to Weird and Start the Podcast because it is freaking fantastic.
2: You can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at TheseRTR Stories. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All the clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act, fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episode we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These are their stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media.
0: Partners Partners in in Crime crime media. Media.